Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Liam. Thank you so much, James Huntington. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back. We'll do it again tomorrow. Stay tuned. Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel is up next. Your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. Support comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Remember, there is a flash flood warning for southwestern Sullivan County as well as Lackawanna, Luzerne, Pike, Southern Wayne, and southeastern Wyoming counties in northeast Pennsylvania. And that warning is in effect until 945 this evening. This is Radio Catskill. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. There is a divide in the county. It's a county of extremes. It's a county of beauty and ugliness. We witness farm workers and workers in food processing plants deemed essential workers but not essential human beings. In una mesa aproximadamente de 10 personas y eso no está bien. The pandemic has forced everybody to pull that curtain back and to look and now we have to see the reality of where we are. You were just listening to some of the people from the special edition of the Laura Flanders show, COVID in the Country, a special report from Sullivan County, New York. This feature looks at how one rural community is responding to the pandemic. Laura Flanders is the host and executive producer of the Laura Flanders show. This is very exciting to follow up really, well, to introduce our listeners to the Laura Flanders show and to a feature story that was produced by the Laura Flanders show COVID in the country. And we have some of the guests who were in that episode, including Sandy Oxford, who is the director of the Hudson Valley Labor Federation. We have Carlos Oriana, who is a labor organizer. And we have Laura Flanders, who is the founder and producer of the Laura Flanders Show. So I am interested in addressing the issues that were raised in the episode that were revealed and what are the next steps for our community here in Sullivan County. And I want to say that the four of us all have roots here in the Sullivan County Catskills. Well, thank you, Sabrina. Thank you so much for for having us all on. And first, I just want to thank you for your partnership in producing this special episode. You know, what people may not know if they're only finding out about my show right this minute is mine is a weekly show that's usually produced out of New York City. 
I've had a cabin in Sullivan County for 30 years, but typically it's been where I've come to rest and relax like so many other urbanites. And it really took a pandemic and you <laughs> for me to say, I want to know more about this place and what is happening here. And not just, oh, poor Sullivan County, rural, small town America, aren't they hard up? But rather, what exists here that could be inspiring for the world and for the rest of this country? And what kind of strength is, and creativity is being shown in this place? Because it was obvious immediately that that was what was keeping Sullivanites alive what kind of strength and creativity and collaborative techniques, mutual aid and all the rest were being shown here in this epidemic that we need more people to know about. So it was a real treat and a learning experience for me to go on this journey with, with you, Sabrina. And, and I'm very excited to be here with JFF listeners to talk about our special episode. Well, thank you, Laura. First of all, Sullivan County is and an exquisitely beautiful place. Sullivan County is this very gorgeous rural area of New York. We have a very eclectic group of people here, all different religions, all different backgrounds. The people of Sullivan County have a really uh, strong sense of place, a really strong identity with where they live and with the Catskills. The landscape, it's what keeps me here. I live right in front of a lake and it's gorgeous. I have intentionally raised my family in this wonderful community over the last quarter of a century. You have the beauty of really knowing your neighbor, knowing the neighborhood, people knowing you, and there's a great sense of solidarity in that. There is a divide in the county. It's a county of extremes. It's a county of beauty and ugliness. We witness farm workers and workers in food processing plants deemed essential workers, but not essential human beings. In a mesa, aproximadamente de 10 personas, y eso no está bien. The pandemic has forced everybody to pull that curtain back and to look, and now we have to see the reality of where we are. The COVID-19 crisis hit New York City. I came up here to Sullivan County, a rural county, just two hours north, where I've had a cabin for more than 30 years. After a few weeks, I started noticing that the numbers here were rising and the incidence rate per head of population was actually higher than that in Manhattan in New York City. To find out what was going on, I got my trusty mask and a super long selfie stick and went to find out. I feel very proud of the episode because of who is in it, right? And how they're participating and the complexity that gets uh, shared with the viewers about Sullivan County. So I would welcome you both, Sandy and Carlos, to join, join in now in this conversation about what your thoughts are in terms of what it is raising for people and also you're both organizers. And so what are the next steps needed for us in Sullivan County? They believe that these are disposable workers and this and that and that these workers will continue to cross invisible borders to get into this country to make their crackers, to make their foie gras, to make their, uh, you know, Cornish hens and, 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 and to produce all of the, the food 
that the essential workers have been forced to get up and do every day. Sandra Oxford, director of the Hudson Valley Area Labor Federation. Well, I I feel the episode was a real good snapshot of our community, our rural community, and the resiliency of in the midst of this disorganization of the pandemic, we were able to see our leaders, our new leaders rising to the top. And while it was um, saddening and maddening that we didn't get the support or the um, leadership from the formal part of our, our government, it did make room for the grassroots and also for our neighbors to just stand in that gap. And so that was, that was beautiful. And it showed many of my colleagues throughout the state who are organizers, who are involved in doing movement work, who have heard about the depressing statistics of Sullivan County to see some of our superstars in action and really hear directly from folks who are um, part of uh, part of keeping the ship afloat here. Thank you, Sandy. In the case of farm workers, they're not even considered to be part of the economy sometimes. Very few people know about their working conditions, their their living conditions, how they're treated. Some come from overseas to work here. It's like like an invisible community. Carlos Orellana, um, union organizer with United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. Carlos, any thoughts? Yeah, I I think that um, I want to appreciate the work that you did. Um, I want to thank you because I've been in Sullivan County for about seven years, right, as a resident. I, I have come up here to work with the poultry worker, with the, you know, uh, Hudson Valley, Fargrai, and other farms in the area. But I have been here as a resident. And it, the program gave me a, a whole different perspective about Sullivan County, right? The diversity, the politicians, the the workers, the you know, the young people who are involved in the community. So I I, I feel a little bit of uh, some kind of pride now to be in, in Sullivan County and proud, you know, to be able to work and to be friends with people like Sandy and Juanita. And now that I got to know more people, you know, through, through this uh, project that you did. So I see a lot of potential in what we could do as a community in Sullivan County. You know, it's such a small um, population in community that many things can happen. And from what we saw during the pandemic, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, I don't want to say a bad word, but there's a lot of things that are not right that we need to pay attention to. So this might be an opportunity for us to empower the people who have been excluded, right? And, you know, working at the Formaggio cheese factory, the poultry farms, the, the, the egg farms that we have, the, the women who work in the hotels, you know, in the casinos, um, what's her name? The state senator, uh, Metzger, she was talking about all the job opportunities that we have in the county. But, you know, the jobs are not really, you know, good paying job with good benefits, right? They're like kind of a low wage job with no benefit. So there is a lot that we we need to do in terms of improving the quality of life of the residents and empowering the working class and the young people. I mean, when I saw Juanita, you know, she's a leader, right, in the community and, and, and the daughter of the worker. To just continue with what Carlos is speaking on, you know, it's um, 
still to this day, the leadership of our county has not issued a very strong anti-racist statement. And this is something that we're seeing across the country. And um, we can no longer uncouple the racist nature of poverty and the disparities that we see in our community from, from that. And maybe it's going to take the groundswell of support from our community to help our elected officials to address that on, 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 a, on a larger scale. Because when we go into a place like the government center at 100 North Street, you can very well, just by doing a visual, look and see that that is not a representation of the community who works in that building. And that's something that has been a problem for a long time. You know, um, I've often said that there should be more Latino people there that are not pushing a broom. And that is, you know, I still say that today. I've been saying that for a few decades now. And now I think I could say it in people's ears and their hearts may be open to hear it. So I want to hope that with the young people, with the support of the media, with the support of those of us who are willing to do the work, that we're going to help our elected officials because at this moment in time, we have to figure out a way how to meet in the middle and how to unify um, our municipalities, our local budgets. Everything is going to be slashed by 20%. And if we don't come together to appeal to the federal government, to the state government, and to the county governments, the public good that we rely on as it relates to our schools, our hospitals, and just the services that, that many of our communities um, are expecting are at risk. I certainly felt like I got my um, marching orders in a sense because as a member of the media, I realized how just shameful it is that this reality is so poorly covered, so misunderstood, so invisible. We're not talking rural America millions of miles away. We're talking 100 miles from Wall Street Mm -hmm. and some of the most well-funded media institutions in the world. Mine is not one of those. (laughs) Um, um, And yet this reality is so, so misunderstood. And the vulnerabilities that exist in rural areas are the are all of our vulnerabilities that's something that came across very strongly in this piece to me and in the people that we talk to uh, we cannot and i think there's somebody on the, i think it's aileen actually who says you know it's a matter of inequality we're talking about inequality rural urban inequality is one of the inequalities we need to talk about and um media failure to pay attention is just as i said shameful and i should just say one of the exciting news i have exciting pieces of news I have is that, you know, my show has been for years on CUNY TV and Free Speech TV and Link TV. And it's, you know, it's gotten out there on YouTube and all over. We've been around for many, many, many years. But this year, this starting in September, we'll go into public television. So this show from Sullivan County will be on public television stations all across the country, reaching three quarters of all the viewing households in the U.S., I'm led to believe, uh, as well as on the public television website. So I feel like we're making one little inroad and I hope that it leads to much more interest and attention from the media. Absolutely. It's, it's very important. And I always think of my home here in Sullivan County is really, it's a microcosm 
of the issues that we're facing throughout the country, really. And it's an opportunity for us to dive in and, and look at what are the needs here and what, right, what are some of the models of change and what are the opportunities that we have in this moment? Uh, and I guess, what are the needs? And Carlos and Sandy and, and Laura, what are you seeing now as the, the needs and the opportunities in these next steps? Yeah, so I, I hear you. We have to help our uh, leaders and our neighbors not to uncouple these issues. And that's something I think that we can all actively do because whether you're talking about over-policing the black community or not giving the black community their due with trying to get mortgages or uh, business loans to be able to start their businesses up, especially here through the, through the IDA, through the Sullivan County IDA that has, I don't believe they've ever helped a black business um, in my, in, if, as long as I can remember, I don't think they've ever given a dime to a black business here in Sullivan County, the Sullivan County IDA. So you cannot uncouple the impact of racism from the poverty, from these health disparities that we're seeing with the COVID. Absolutely. I, let me jump before I forget, because uh, um, I think that we have to create the opportunity and the space to train leaders in the community, right? The young people, how do we uh, get the African-American community with the whites and the Hispanics? Sandy probably has been more exposed to working together, you know, with the African-American community. But we need to unify, right, the working class and the middle class in, in the county and provide those opportunities for people to get trained about where we live and what, what is going on in our context here in Sullivan County. And the media, I mean, a radio station can play a very interesting role in, you know, helping to communicate and, and to focus a little bit on the, on, on the county and the communities here. That's one of the opportunities I see that, that we need to um, take advantage of. I hear very strongly your message, Sandy, about connecting and uniting. And I think the other thing that we need to unite is the narrative. Like we can't mm -hmm. afford to go from COVID in the country to racism in the country. These are the same. We could have called our episode race and class and gender in, in the country, mm -hmm. racism, sexism. I mean, this COVID yes. epidemic is disproportionately affecting people of color and women of color, especially. And this stage three of reopening will also be affecting disproportionately the women of color who have lost their jobs in the recession, who are going to be going back into poorly protected, precarious work with more responsibilities at home more vulnerabilities themselves. Uh, we, we can't move, as the media so often do, from just one topic to the next topic without seeing the connections. And I have to say, I'm very concerned that even though we have just been through weeks now of focusing on white supremacy and racism and institutional structural racism in our institutions of policing and other, and, and other ones, um, I'm seeing the media acting like they forgot about that as they go to covering COVID again. This this is right. not, we can't afford this, it's this silos, segmented, right? siloed yeah. ways of looking at the world and our challenges, because it silos the people, and we need our people and our movements to, to work together. Right, it silos the people. It's such a great point, Laura, that you're making, and Sandy and Carlos, because it's siloing, by siloing the issues, it silos the people, and then very little change can occur, right? So that becomes a strategy of not making changes. 
Yeah, suddenly we talk to lots of African-American people, but we're only talking to them about policing. And then when the topic turns to COVID or governance or the budget, we don't, we go back to the same old um, white people, <laughs> mostly men. So what about the, the, uh, the, the federal, the spending, federal spending bill that, that's coming? Yes. So the federal spending bill, I believe we're going to see movement early uh, in July. And what we are asking the AFL-CIO, the national AFL-CIO, and all of the states are uh, calling on workers and middle class and people who really rely on what we are considering the public good, which are our hospitals, our schools, our municipalities, the, the, the services that, that we all rely on, that the federal government come in and help us. Many of our municipal governments are facing extraordinary cuts. New York State is already thinking about a 20% cut across the board with, with everything. And that is going to be devastating. That is going to take years to help us return back from there. We believe that there are other sources of revenue. We believe that it is time to tax the uber-rich. We believe it is time to tax billionaires. We believe that it is time to get these uh, resources. And I'm really pleased that the labor movement is calling on some way for this federal government to figure out how they're going to cover people's health care, because health care has now taken center stage. And I'm very proud of the labor movement because they've not been able to get into one chorus as far as um, what we need. But the call right now is we need to do everything we can do to expand health coverage to all workers because all workers should not be uncovered as they've been. Thank you, Sandy. Carlos, are there campaigns around this that people could get involved in? Just briefly, I'm sure Sabrina wouldn't mind if, if we asked, you know, what can people do in relation to this, the subjects that we've been raising on this show and in the episode? Because there's probably a lot of people out there thinking, oh, I would like to get involved somehow. No, not not really. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking more like we need to sit down and continue the conversation to see what what do we have, what what are we facing, right? And I'm thinking, how do we connect you guys who are professionals in the you know in the media and 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 press uh, background with the young people in our community with the labor leaders with politicians because the we do a favor to the powers right when we keep ourselves isolated from each other as well, i mean you know the whole all say and divide and con- conquer but we we do it ourselves we we make it easier for <laughs> for those in the power up in the right? So the challenge is to be able to find ways to work to, together. You know, I, I always keep thinking of Spain. I watch the Spanish news a lot in the news from Spain and they have collectivos, right? The collectives, you know, the women's, the, the senior citizens. And there are days when everybody goes out into the streets and there are big marches and hundreds of thousands of people go out into the street. And we don't have that kind of, capacity here in the states to mobilize well we do sometimes right but but you see that more in europe where you know hundreds of thousands of people would go out into the street 
And uh, I, you know, I would like to see that we move in that direction where we can have, you know, uh, uh, a few leaders in the community saying, we're gonna do this and we're gonna bring, you know, 5,000 people out into the street. We're gonna bring the senior citizens, the, the African-American community, the young ones. You know, uh, uh, that's what I'm kind of dreaming of. That I think, in, in including myself, we need to get out of our comfort zone because, you know, we are, especially those of us who have a little bit of, you know, extra, you know, resources, but we get comfortable, right? And that's the whole idea of the American dream. You know, live comfortably and, and travel and enjoy life. You know, don't worry about your neighbor. They have, they're going to take care of themselves. Or the, the state will take care of themselves. So I think with the pandemic, uh, we have, I feel challenged that I need to do more for, for the community where I live. And I see a lot of potential, uh, a lot of resources that we have in the community, right? Sandy has been fighting for decades in, in, in the area. And, you know, changes happen and then people get excited and then stop. Then there is no, no active, activism. And then we have to come up to some kind of crisis and face a crisis to wake up again. You know, racism, we don't hear about it on a regular basis on TV or the radio, but until somebody shot so humanely that everybody gets angry for a few weeks or a few days and then it goes away. You know, we go back to COVID-19. Because whatever sells in the media is what people get, you know, from, from, from the news. And we, the citizens, don't get involved. So we, we're the ones that get, we're very complacent. So we, we give the, those people in power the green light to continue, you know, keeping the same status quo. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to challenge myself, right, to get out of my comfort zone. And, I, you know, I would like to send the same invitation to you guys and other people in the community. We have a lot of potential. I think we have a lot of young people. Um, I would love to see, you know, Laura, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how often you come to town, but to the area, but doing something with Juanita. She has this group of youth people. They they do a lot of around the media. How do you um, talk about the reality of where you live, right? How do you expose that to the world? What's going on in your neighborhood? Um, that kind of thing. How, how do we pay attention to our own community, right? And make it better. Uh, that's that. I see local training programs, Sabrina. What are you saying? Exactly. And thank you, Carlos. We do. I need to challenge myself, right? It's a good reminder. And I'm always open to internships. And we even pay minimal amounts for internships. And I'd be happy to do some training work. So while we're here, let's let's do that. Connect. Yeah. So I just want to say that there is a way that you can support passing the HEROES Act. And the AFL-CIO has a phone number where you'll call the phone number and then you put in your zip code and they'll connect you to your senator because we really need it to pass the Senate. So in order to pass HR 6800-6800, which is the HEROES Act, we're asking people to call 866-832-1560, 866-832-1560. One five six zero. What is entailed in the um, 
in the Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act is what we've been pushing for, because right now we don't have these standards in OSHA, but we are pushing for emergency workplace infectious disease standards, which will help us in the pandemic. We are also pushing for local aid for state governments, for public schools, for the U.S. Postal Service, and for pension relief, which is really important because this is about workers. This is about stabilizing um, our communities. And we want to be sure that we keep workers on the payroll to avoid massive layoffs. So we want, we are calling for them to extend the unemployment insurance, which has been very helpful because it's been able to keep families buoyant. Um, we are also calling, the AFL-CIO is also calling in this unprecedented moment, extended uh, health coverage that, and, and, and also to provide extended housing, food benefits to uh, the folks who are affected by the pandemic. So that's the HEROES Act. Well, thank you so much, Sandy, uh, Carlos, and Laura. I just want to thank you all. I've been speaking with Laura Flanders from the Laura Flanders Show, Sandy Oxford from the Hudson Valley Labor Federation, and Carlos Oriana from, well, who is a, a labor organizer. So I want to thank you all. Is there anything else you want I to close out I would say if, if you want to see the full show, go to lauraflanders.org. You can follow The LF Show, not to be confused with The Elf Show, which is something different. The LF Show on Instagram and Twitter, and we're on Facebook. See all of the people you've been listening to in all of their furious righteous glory thank you all so much thank you to watch this episode of covid in the country and learn more about the laura flanders show please visit the website at lauraflanders.org from the kitchen table out on the road i'm sabrina artell thanks for joining me for sabrina artell's trailer talk the music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. What would you like to share with us about Sullivan County? Do you feel that the situation has gotten worse for the essential workers? What do you think needs to happen? Who else were you providing meals for? Asking the questions that need to be asked, having the conversations that need to be heard. Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk, Wednesday night at 7. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I just want to let them know that we love them, that we care about them. You're listening to Radio Catskill, on air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer... From the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am excited to be speaking with Judge Josephine Finn. She is a judge in Monticello, New York, in the Sullivan County Catskills. 
She is a former community college professor and also a lawyer. And I want to invite all of you to join us for this virtual episode of Trailer Talk to imagine that you are in and around the Beeline Travel Trailer and that you are gathered with us around the kitchen table as Josephine Finn and I have this conversation. So welcome to Trailer Talk, Josephine. Thank you. My pleasure. You said something just before we started recording where you said it all starts at home. So let's start there. Let's start with home and what that means for you and a little bit about who you are, how you would describe yourself for our listeners and what that means to you that it all starts at home. Well, to do that, I'd have to go back to well before I was born when my grandparents came to Sullivan County, New York, specifically the village of Monticello. And they built a church and it was back in the 1930s. And I came along some years later and was raised in that church. And so that's where it all started for me. My grandfather built that church with his hands. It stands today. Uh, One of my cousins is the pastor. And uh, that's where I got my beginning. I, I, I feel that's where I got my spiritual development, my interest in service, uh, to my community and, um, the very uh, building blocks of who I am started right there. And what are those building blocks that you're referring to and your interest in service? Well, the major thing I have, uh, in my mind that sticks with me my entire life is, is very simple. Uh, one of the commandments and, um, that is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That just stuck with me my whole life. And so I also, um, had to go along with that, a desire to see the world be a better place than what I found. So it was always somehow in me, and I'm not quite sure how that got there, but it was just always in me to always want to see something more than what I found. Now, I can trace that back perhaps to my own, you know, grandparents and parents who always wanted to be helpful in the community. So I, I guess you pick up those things at home. Your community is one that you're serving as a judge at present. You have also been elected to the New York State Board of Regents. So your commitment to education and your interest in that is a long one. And also you are a former professor at Sullivan Community College, SUNY Sullivan, which is based in Sullivan County, New York. Uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving some things out, but so your ties to the community are from uh, you, as you described, being born here, also a legal one and as an advisor, as a judge, and then also as an educator. So where would you like to begin with this, these roots of home that you're sharing with us mm-hmm. and how that then took you to some places where you are now and how you're serving the community where you live? Well, you know, the interesting thing about all of that is when I look back on my life, I didn't seek out any of those things. I didn't seek out to be a professor. I didn't seek out the Board of Regents. I didn't seek out being a judge at first. Um, I was appointed as a judge in the 90s by the then mayor 
And I served for a couple of years, I think. And, and then I forgot about it. I went on with my life until I ran um, for judge. The first time I ran, I think it was in the late 90s. And uh, I actually lost that election. It was about 34 or five votes. That's what happens in a small village. <laughs> and I went on about my business and people came back to me and said, please, you were so close. Would you run again? And I thought, oh, I don't really want to do this. They said, no, please, we will absolutely support you. And so I ran and I won. And that was in 2002. And I'm still the judge to this day. I am in my fifth term. The only time I was ever opposed really was in my first term. And after that, I didn't even have any opposition, which is a little bit to my chagrin because I think, you know, somebody should run. <laughs> I don't think it should just be a, you know, a given. Right. Um, but, but somehow people just wanted me to stay there. And um, even as I get ready to retire, people are asking me, please don't go. But, you know, you got to know when to say when. You really do. Yes. And so when my term is up next year, I will be stepping down. So Judge Finn, what does it mean to be a judge? That's a huge amount of responsibility and also power. And it puts you in a position of seeing and knowing things to deepen your own relationship with the place you live. So how would you describe that for us? Well, being a judge in a small town is interesting because you know everybody pretty much. And um, I certainly I have a lot of people come before me that I don't know, but there are a lot of people come before me who I do know. And what I really have always tried to do is have it make no difference. That's the key. It can't make a difference that I know you or don't know you. I'm there to do justice. And so you really do have to wear blinders. Um, it gets tough sometimes, but you have to do it. And I really have learned from that to watch, to see things. A lot of times it's not what people say, it's what they don't say. <laughs> so you get to learn those things. You, you, you get to learn that uh, meeting out justice means slightly different things at different times. It depends all, entirely on the circumstances. And uh, of that particular person standing before you, every single person is someone different. And even though they may have similar circumstances when they come before you, you have to see that person as an individual. So it means that to me. And has that position that you hold as a judge, has that inspired you towards actions? I'm thinking of the dream tank. That you found. Oh, you've heard of the dream tank. Yes. <laughs> well, so, yes, it did. The dream tank and Judge Josephine Victoria Finn collaborate with community organizations to provide outreach for youth. I'm going to be able to dream, so I know I'll succeed. I'm going to go shopping in Italy. I'm going to be a background singer. I'm going to Africa. I'm going to move to Puerto Rico. I'm going to donate money to the kids in Africa who have AIDS so they can get help. I'm going to travel around the world and shop in Tokyo. I'm going to party with famous people. I'm going to meet Neil and pay him to marry me. I'm going to come back to the next time model and meet my celebrity crushes like this one. I'm going to meet Barrow. I'm going to be a better model than Tyler Banks I'm going to have a party on Mars and sell out of records. I'm going to just be me no matter what no one else is saying. Get married to a famous person and kiss Barrow. I'm going to stay determined and focus on my goals and dreams so I know I'll succeed. 
So I guess you're too busy to have a baby right now. Hi, this is Judge Josephine Finn. This message is brought to you by The Dream Project and Teen Link to Community. For more information on teen pregnancy and other teen-related issues, Get pregnant later. Uh, a couple of years after I was on the bench, I, I'm thinking it was probably more like three or four years after I started, um, I really began to feel uncomfortable. And it was because um, the majority of the people who I saw in the criminal justice system looked just like me. I'm African-American, except they were mostly males. I saw um, also brown males. Um, make up the majority of the people who I saw in that courtroom. And many of them were young and getting felonies. Uh, even though I don't actually hear actual felonies, they go to a superior court. I do do felony hearings. They do get arraigned in my court. And I was just seeing them coming through and many of them ending up in prison. And I thought, why am I putting people in jail on the back end when I haven't done anything to help them on the front end? And I could have easily have sat there and said, well, I'm a judge and I'm doing my duty to the community. But I live in two distinct communities. I live in the Black community and I live in the white community. And that's just um, a given uh, with people, African-American people in this country. A lot of times we live in two different communities. Uh, and so I thought I should do something. And I thought, what can I do? I went to the court and I said, I'd like to start a program. And I thought maybe I would do it through the court. And the first thing they said to me is, you know, this is a great idea, but we're going to have to jump through this or that, but, you know, and they went on and I thought, you know what, I don't have the patience for this. I am not doing that. And so I went on my own. I just happened to have a conversation called it kismet, call it what you will, mm -hmm. with a friend of mine. And I hadn't seen him in a while and he was doing very well. And I told him about my idea and he said, you know what, come see me. And when I went to see him, he gave me a check for $30,000. He said, I like your idea. Why don't you start it? That's some kismet. Can you believe that? I can based on what you're <laughs> describing and what people say about the dream tank. And that stands for dynamic realization through enrichment, actualization, and motivation. Correct. And you talk about empowering at-risk youth. So what does that look like? Who are some of these young people that you're talking about? And I'm very interested in what you just shared with us about living in two distinct communities. Okay, being, well, we can talk a, about that. Right, being a Black American. So you said that you're living in a Black community and also a white. So this is connected to you founding the dream tank. So oh, yes, absolutely. if you can talk about these distinct communities from your perspective. Well, in my family, we had a talk and I hear people talking about the black talk um, where, you know, you talk to a black male about what to do if he's stopped by the police and so forth and so on, because you don't want your son to be killed. But we had a different kind of black talk in my house. We had the black talk when you're young and the first time that some white child calls you out of your name, you hear something that you've never heard before often. And in my case, I went home and said, why are they calling me these names? And that's when we had the talk. My parents sat us down, three children. I was the youngest. We were two years apart, my brother, my sister, and me. And my father said, uh, let me explain something to you. And both my parents came out of Louisiana. Both sides of my family are from Louisiana. And so 
they just began to, to kind of try to explain to us. Now you have to understand they're talking to a child who's with three children. I'm seven, my sister's maybe nine, my brother's 11. And of course he already knows more than, than I know. And um, they're just ex- kind of explaining to us, this is the world you live in. And these are things you, this, this is not going to be the only time you're going to face this. And so this is how you have to carry yourself. You have to understand that there are people in this world who think they're better than you. They are not. My parents had this whole conversation with us. They are not. However, you have to live in situations where you're not always going to be treated fairly. And they, they just gave us this whole conversation. Uh, but I understood. I understood what they were trying to tell me. And as I went through school, I saw the things they were trying to tell me, even though it wasn't the same as the South, it still wasn't good. Mm -hmm. I knew that Black people were treated differently than white people. I knew we were treated as second-class citizens, even though I couldn't put that name to it as a child. And so when you grow up with that, you just develop certain instincts and, and, and you learn uh, that you have to really stick together. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, I'm a child of the 60s. I came of age in the 60s. I came of age. I came out of high school in 1968. So, you know, the country was burning. Uh, people were angry. The Vietnam War was raging. People were demonstrating on campus when I got to college. And so I was active there, too. Coming of age in the 60s, you mentioned the Vietnam War, the the peace protests, the anti-war movement, of course, the civil rights movement preceded that and continued to build. How has that influenced how you are as a judge? And also the initiative that you started with the Dream Tank to focus on at-risk youth in your community of Monticello, New York. Okay. Like, How do all of these threads come together to this well, moment of 2021? When you think about it, you know, if I if I go back and I think about it, I be, I became active when I was about 13 years old. I got a summer job in the neighborhood youth corps and they had gotten monies to start the first community action programs. You've probably heard of community action programs. And the first one in Sullivan County started, they started with the neighborhood youth corps and a couple of other small programs and I was one of the first kids in the neighborhood youth corps. And they had me actually and I was in an office I was working with community organizers at 13 years old over the summer I worked. And then they gave me some hours in the fall and winter. And and so that's where I really cut my teeth. And that's where I really got a taste for how you organize the community and what you do and, and what the issues are. I was 13 years old. So by the time I got to college, I kind of had a little bit of understanding of those things. And when I got to a college and we wanted Black studies program, they didn't have one. We wanted Black professors. They didn't have one. Uh, But when I left, they did. They had a full Black studies program. And the proof of it is I graduated with a degree in psychology and Black studies. We were responsible for making that happen over those four years. And that is so important for us to remember all of the activists who are responsible for making these changes towards a more just society towards equity and to keep working towards that. And you are the recipient of many awards. And I want to say that you've been awarded from the NAACP 
for your work as a lawyer. You also received the Frederick Douglass Award, Community Volunteerism Awards from SUNY Sullivan. So everything you're sharing with us now even is represented in, in just three of the awards I just mentioned, and you have received many for the work that you're doing based on what you're sharing with us about your advocacy work and coming of age during the 60s and being involved with those social justice movements. What would you say your priorities are at this moment? This moment, my priority is to raise up a nation of warriors. And I call them warriors, but I'm talking about leaders. I want young men and women to rise up in this nation and to take control of their destiny. And I know a little bit about leadership. And I want to impart that to these young people. So what I've done in the pandemic, it just so happens that my major source of funds was from Sullivan County over many years. They've, they've really contributed to us keeping the program open. But when the pandemic happened, they defunded us. And I, at that moment, felt anger. I was angry. I say it always happens to the ones who can at least afford to have them happen to it. Always the first to go. But then I very, very quickly collected myself. And I said, you know, you're always preaching to people that there are two sides to the universe. There's always pairs up and down, in and out. And whenever there's a negative, there's always a positive. So what's the positive in this? And it hit me. You need to teach these young people to fight for themselves. I always, my whole life have fought for others. Even when I was a child, I would fight for other kids. If you were picking on someone who wouldn't fight for themselves, I had to stick my two cents in because I thought that the odds were unfair. I had an innate sense of fairness my entire life. I guess I was destined to be a judge. I was about but, to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I just felt like, wow, you know what? Yeah. This is not a time for you to fight for them. This is a time for you to teach them to fight for themselves. So what I've been working on since last year when I found out we were defunded until now is I've really been working on um, trying to build what I have named Solemn Leadership Initiative. And Solemn is named after my parents. My father was Solomon, hmm. my mother, Ida May. So it's S-O-L-I-M. Dedicated to your parents. And, and what is Solemn Leadership? Solemn Leadership is basically an initiative where I have a forum, a place for me not to teach leadership, but to collaborate with young people around their leadership skills. I only want to develop leadership. You, you don't teach it, you develop it. And that's what I'm working on. And I'm just trying to figure out a way to, you know, make sure we keep everything up and going. I'm sure we're going to be just fine. This program, anything I've touched, uh, which has to do with youth, has just simply been blessed. And that's the only way I can put it. Uh, I really have always found a way uh, so I'm going to yes, find yes. a way to make this happen too. I have my first test class, a uh, few young men from Sullivan County, but this is open to the world. We have an application and we're going to put it out um, on Instagram. It'll be on the internet and people are going to be able to apply. I'm going to take on about 10 or 12 at a time. 
And we're going to really go through a process and, and carve some leaders. You know, one of my favorite expressions came from, I believe it was Michelangelo who did David, right? Mm-hmm. And and they and they were marveling over how he did the statue. And how did you how did you do that? And he said, I I just saw an angel trapped in the in the marble and I set about to free it. And I right. never forgot that. I thought, you know what? That's what I'm doing here. I see wonderful spirits who are just trapped, trapped in a, a racist system, trapped in poverty trapped in food deserts, trapped in prisons. And so these are the things that I'm now working. I need young leaders to address all of these social justice issues. And so that's what I'm working on now. Judge Finn, thank you so much for sharing that. You mentioned to me before we began the recording, something about a poem that that you've written. And I'm wondering if you would share that with us. It's one of the many, uh, but I'd be more than happy to share with you for Black History Month um, a poem that's called Black Girl. Thank you. Black girl, mother of all the world, please don't let your curl unfurl. You're the one. Gave life to everyone. Now they act like your work is done. Got you standing back against the wall. Feel like you got nobody. Nobody at all. But remember, Nubian, in the end, the universe is in your skin. Indigo to cinnamon. Right down to the bowels of the earth. The universe, it sings your worth. From Lake Victoria to the Caribbean waters, the song they sing is that you are their daughters. Brought us here from the motherland through the whips and chains in their hands. Lynched your sons and raped your daughters. You stand now alone and still beside the waters. Face burned by the sun and shunned by the world. But black girl, please don't let your curl unfurl. Black girl, goddess of the sun. You gave life to everyone. Thank you so much. That is Judge Josephine Finn sharing her poem. There's the universe sings, right? That's what you just shared with us. Uh, some of some of the words of this powerful message. I want to thank you for that. You're somebody that is in addition to being a judge, a lawyer, an educator, you're an activist, an advocate. You founded the Dream Tank that gives, as you say, a source of direction to youth, to at-risk youth. And that's something that you see as youth come before you on the bench. And I just wonder if there's anything you want to take us out with as we come to a conclusion with this conversation. There are so many more things we can talk about. And of course, I welcome you to come back and and join me for Trailer Talk. But anything you'd like to share at this moment? Well, what, the only thing I want to leave you with is just kind of the motto of the Dream Tank that if we don't capture the hearts and minds of our youth, someone else will. And that's 
something that I keep in my mind always. And so what I want to do now is um, get together with these young people and see if we can't build a better world. Thank you so much. I have been speaking with Josephine Victoria Finn, who is a fifth term judge in Monticello, New York, in the Sullivan County Catskills, a lawyer, formerly a professor of community college at SUNY Sullivan in Sullivan County, New York. She's also the founder of Dream Tank, which is an initiative to support youth in Sullivan County to give a sense of direction to the youth and specifically to at-risk youth and also has a leadership program, which is open to everyone in the world, as you say, Judge Finn. That's and right. we began this conversation with something you said, and I quote you, it all starts at home. So I want to thank you for that. It all starts at home. And you were doing so much from your neighborhood in the Sullivan County Catskills that has an impact beyond. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judge Finn, for speaking with me. To find out more about The Dream Tank, please visit thedreamtankonline.com. The Dream Tank stands for Dynamic Realization Through Enrichment, Actualization, and Motivation. It was founded by Judge Josephine Victoria Finn. And the mission of The Dream Tank is empowering at-risk youth in Sullivan County, New York, the Dream Tank is described as an organization that provides opportunities for young people to learn, grow, and excel. It provides support and mentoring to guide youth in the right direction. Through their work, they empower at-risk youth to discover their purpose in life and make the most of their potential. Its goal is to help at-risk and disadvantaged youth find their purpose and avoid Judge Finn's courtroom, with the goal of minimizing the risk factors that lead to gangs, violence, crime, substance abuse, and teen pregnancy. Some examples of the programs they have provided are artist development, character education, retreats, hip-hop therapy, mentorship, music, civic engagement, and restorative justice. Judge Finn is also going to be offering the Solemn, S-O-L-I-M, the Solemn Leadership Initiative for Social Justice. It is open to everyone between the ages of 18 and 40. And if you're interested in Judge Finn's Solemn Leadership Initiative, please email that's solemn, S-O-L-I-M-L-I-S-J at gmail.com. And that's a leadership initiative coming up that's open, as she says, to the world. Thanks again, Judge Finn. You're welcome. My pleasure. Okay, you have I'm a wonderful okay. day. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, 
and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR's Morning Edition. As you've no doubt heard, listener support makes public radio possible. But here's something you may not have heard. Public radio stations around the country raise millions of dollars each year from the sale of donated vehicles. That's right, vehicles of all sorts. Whether they're running or not, they can be turned into support for public radio. That vehicle you no longer need, here's how to donate it to support this station. Donate now at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville. Radio Catskill.